from the new media project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, a pair of ophthalmologists from Oxford. In every single individual that comes in, one has to try and decide what the life expectancy is going to be like. In essence, that will determine the target pressure that one is seeking in that individual patient. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CMA activity. Dr. Salmon and Barnes declare no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, and the first to offer multinational editions is now co-sponsored by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The ASCRS recognizes the power of this new medium in communication and education of physicians everywhere. This partnership will allow us to bring new content to you and add new voices to our community. From Manhattan to Mumbai, from the Bay Area to Beijing, one conversation as seen from here. Many factors need to be considered when planning a therapeutic regimen for a patient with glaucoma. Extent of glaucomatous optic neuropathy, visual field loss, compliance. How about longevity? What is the life expectancy of patients with glaucoma, and how should life expectancy influence our therapeutic plans? John Salmon has looked into this question and has now published his results in the British Journal of Ophthalmology. John, what does life expectancy have to do with glaucoma management? The um, whole trick with glaucoma management is to try and titrate the visual function with the years that the patient has left. In simple terms, it makes no sense to reduce the pressure to very low levels in someone whose life expectancy is extremely short. Equally, if someone has a long life expectancy, one needs to get the pressures down to a reasonable level uh, because that patient has got uh, many years of life to go. So life expectancy is a, a critical part of the evaluation of any patient that we see with glaucoma. What did your study seek to answer? Well, what we were looking at is to see what our patients were doing over a 10-year period. So very simply put, we looked at a, a large group of patients who were sent to a screening clinic. In other words, it was an unbiased group of patients. And then we looked at the group who then had a diagnosis of glaucoma made. And it's that group that we analyzed 10 years later. In terms of numbers, we originally saw 436 patients in the glaucoma case finding clinic, and we made a diagnosis of glaucoma in 65. The other patients were, uh, had ocular hypertension, they had uh, um, physiological cupping, they were not considered to have glaucoma. Now, of that 65 patients, 57 were treated at the Oxford Eye Hospital. The other eight patients were lost to follow-up, largely because they moved out of the district. So we've got a very good follow-up record in Oxford, um, because people generally don't leave uh, Oxfordshire. Can you tell me more about the demographics of the study population? Well, this is an important factor, because clearly the results of this study are relevant to individuals who have a similar background to the ones we were studying. In particular, these patients were all white. 
They were all elderly. The average age at presentation was uh, 71 years. And most of them had early glaucoma. So those are the three big demographic factors that one has to take into account when analyzing these data. John, would you describe the Quigley grading scale? Well, Quigley um, um, set out to create a, a, a simple scale um, uh, which had nine degrees of severity in it and published this in a, a, an article in the American Journal of Ophthalmology in 1994. And in essence, the reason why it's such a good classification is because the differences between stages are quite large. So it's not like a randomized control study where very, very tight triggers on progression are, are, are created. Um, it's more like um, a situation that we see in normal practice and it has, I think, uh, um, more relevance because, of course, in the early stages, these patients usually have very little visual dysfunction. How advanced was the glaucoma of the patients in this study? Well, in, in, um, in this study, we found that uh, the majority were in grade one or two. So, in other words, um, most of them had early, early glaucoma. John, what were your findings? What were your results? Well, there are two aspects to it. The first is the mortality. And of the 57 patients, 17, that's almost 30%, died during the 10-year period. Um, if one looks at what they died of, nine of those patients died because of vascular events, either cardiovascular in four cases, cerebrovascular in four cases, or complications of peripheral vascular disease in one case. Other causes of death included infections in three, respiratory disease in two, malignancy in two, and uh, suicide in one. So uh, in a similar population, you can expect that uh, approximately 70%, two-thirds of patients will still be under care 10 years after diagnosis. Were the causes of death different from what might have been predicted for other members of their cohort? No. Now, this is a very interesting point, that the causes of death are similar to what you would expect in um, an elderly population. And there's a lot of controversy about this. Um, people have said that uh, glaucoma is a sick eye and a sick body, but whether the glaucoma patients are at greater risk of death than their peers has not been definitively uh, answered. Uh, Lee, for example, suggested that an increased risk of death from any cause, and from cardiovascular disease in particular, was more common in patients with glaucoma. But um, Graydon found that there was no difference in life expectancy between patients with glaucoma and controls. So certainly in this study, the cause of death was similar to what you would expect to find in uh, normal patients, uh, normal individuals of the same age. This question was examined by the Blue Mountain study. Can I get you to summarize their findings? Well, the, the beauty of the Blue Mountain study is that uh, it's a population-based study. And um, they have published their nine-year mortality rates uh, recently, last year. And what they found is that almost exactly the same percentage of individuals as in this study died within a nine-year period. So the results in the Blue Mountain study suggested that almost 24.3% of patients would be dead. And in this study that we've done here, a year later, the the, the, the figure was 29.5%. So very little difference, which would suggest that our study has similar relevance as, um, as, as the prevalent study done in Australia.
How do your findings about the rate of change of vision compare with those of other studies? Well, the thing that is very interesting is that there are very few long-term studies looking at this. All the randomized control studies look at it over a shorter period, and they use very, very tight triggers for progression. So there are very few studies that look at this in the long term, but George Spate looked at a similar uh, um, rate of progression in um, a big study looking at patients over a long period of time, and uh, their figures using a five um, degrees of severity scale found almost exactly the same results. And what this tells us, in fact, is what we know, that if you get your pressures down, the rate of progression in glaucoma is extremely slow for most individuals. John, how should we integrate age or life expectancy into the management of our patients with glaucoma? I think in every single individual that comes in, one has to try and decide what the life expectancy is going to be like. In essence, that will determine the target pressure that one is seeking in that individual patient. The great problem in practice, of course, is that for an individual, it's almost impossible to um, accurately um, determine how long that patient has to live. In terms of groups of patients, certainly the very elderly patients have a short life expectancy and so clearly are at very little risk of developing severe visual loss, especially if the disease is picked up early. The, the group of patients that have to be watched extremely closely are the group that have moderate, moderately advanced glaucoma at a young age and um, that they need extra attention because their life expectancy is so long. In the context of your own practice, what do you do? Do you have guidelines? Oh, I try and determine individual target pressures for each patient, but my general overriding principle is to try and get the pressure down below 18 millimeters mercury. Um, I think there's good evidence to support that. The AGES study shows that. And if you look at this study, the average pressure on presentation was in the region of 25, and the average pressure in the group at 10 years was way down at 15. Now, in many patients, that was achieved with drops, and I think the prostaglandin analogs have helped us enormously there. But in a sizable percentage, uh, trabeculectomy was needed. And I think it's, it, 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 a very tight control of pressure remains important, and these patients were very carefully watched over that long period of time. So I think that's also something to do with it. One has to be prepared to do glaucoma filtration surgery if progressive change is occurring. In practical terms, in the clinic, of course, we, we don't follow them using a nine scale, severity scale, we, 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 we look at uh, much more subtle clues of progression and certainly if the target pressure is not achieved with topical medication, we go on to do trabeculectomy. What about the management of ocular hypertension? How does age play into that? Uh, ocular hypertension is a completely different ball game, and I'm not sure that age, um, th there are any studies that suggest that age is critically important. I mean, common sense would suggest that in an elderly person who's got uh, um, ocular hypertension, uh, the, the risk of progressing to glaucoma is quite small in the medium term. But uh, there are very few studies looking at ocular hypertension and long-term life expectancy. In practical terms, of course, we use the guidelines uh, that have been set down by the ocular hypertension treatment study irrespective of age. And clearly, if the pressures are raised, if the corneal thickness is, is, is less than 555 microns, uh, we would offer treatment to most patients. Um, the very elderly, of course, uh, we would choose just to follow. So people over the age of 80, we would uh, probably follow, despite the guidelines. 
But uh, the key thing is to, to, to stick to the guidelines of the Oath study. John, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, the one other thing that one has to consider is, of course, there are other causes of visual deterioration in this group of patients, and the commonest by far is, uh, is cataract progression. And so in this group of individuals, um, a significant number of them need to take emulsification with intraocular implantation. And, um, and I, I think that's something that needs to be remembered. Not only does the uh, age predispose to that, the age of the individuals, but uh, if they've had glaucoma filtration surgery, that's uh, um, um, a significant uh, risk factor for progression of cataract. And I, I, I certainly know that there is some evidence to suggest that using topical medication can also speed up the pro progress of cataract. Curiously, in this group of people, very few lost vision from age-related macular degeneration, which uh, is a major problem in, in, uh, in Oxford. But this group, none lost vision from that cause. If you actually analyze what is published, uh, it's quite sobering. Harry quickly looked at it in cross-sectional analysis, and he suggested that in European white patients, the average life expectancy was, was 12, just over 12 years. And there's another study that suggests that only 5% will be alive after 15 years. And I think if you, if you take that into account, it, it, it makes such a difference, especially with our potent topical medication. We have um, a very good means of keeping the pressure fairly low, the, the disease is fairly slow moving, and so as a consequence, the, um, the, the prognosis of vision generally for most patients with glaucoma is very good. I, I would say that there are two groups of patients that I watch incredibly closely. And the one, of course, is the, the young group of patients, the patients between 45 and 55, who've got focal ischemic glaucoma. So they've got a focal notch with um, fixation loss, often a, a small scotoma, close to fixation, split fixation. And that group has to be carefully watched because they've got a long life expectancy and they lose um, vision in the central field. And that's critically important in the United Kingdom because driving authorities require um, um, no significant scotoma, binocular scotoma in the central field of vision um, to, to maintain driving license. So that's one group that I watch terribly closely. And the other group that I watch terribly closely are people with high myopia and glaucoma. As a general rule, that's a group of patients that do really badly if they're not carefully watched and if the target pressure is not extremely low. But I mean, for most patients who present with chronic glaucoma, it's, it's, uh, my impression is that it's, it's a fairly benign condition with our modern uh, approaches. You know that the, the, the other thing, of course, that is important, and you mentioned this right in the beginning, it's such a select group of patients that they present early, they are motivated to take the medication, they tend to follow up well, they um, listen to what one advises them to do, and, and so it's a, it's a very, very good situation we have here. But I guess in the States, in, in any private practice, you would have a similar situation. The, the great difficulty uh, we have found in the United Kingdom generally and other places is that people who have um, poor um, socioeconomic backgrounds, because clearly they can't afford to come as often as they should, they often can't afford the medication, although you know there are um, there's a there's a national health system here, and they um, they don't always comply with medication as well as this group of patients uh, do. So completely different uh, scenario really for some patients in some areas in this country. John, how much can you generalize the findings of this study to the broader population? Oh, I think it's completely relevant to to, to individuals of a similar nature. If you look at the demographics of the states, it would probably hold for the vast percentage of 
individuals with glaucoma. The patients that uh, in the States, of course, that have to be very carefully watched would be those of um, African background, largely because they present later, they present with higher pressures, and um, generally their prognosis is, is, is a lot worse than in similar patients to this study. But uh, certainly if you look at the demographics of, of the United States, there'll be huge areas of, of the population that are covered by the study. John Salmon, thank you so much. Uh, that's my pleasure. John Salmon is consultant ophthalmologist at the Oxford Eye Hospital in Oxford, England. His paper, 10-Year Outcomes in Newly Diagnosed Glaucoma Patients, Mortality and Visual Function, is in press in the British Journal of Ophthalmology. I met a lot of people doing very clever things at this year's ASCRS meeting in San Diego. One of the cleverest, Kate Barnes, turned out to be a senior house officer in Oxford who seems to have reinvented the ruler. I asked her to explain her study. Well, we looked at intraoperative pupil size and the capsular rexus size. Um, when first learning cataract surgery, I found that the capsular rexus was a challenging step to master. Um, and not only is it important to try and perform a round central capsular rexus, but it's also important for the trainee cataract surgeon to become proficient in creating a capsular rexus of appropriate size. Um, the background to this is, well, there is evidence to support the idea of an ideal capsular rexus size. It's thought that to minimize posterior capsular pacification, the border of the capsular rexus should overlap the IOL optic. Hence, capsular rexus diameter should be smaller than the optic diameter. And if the capsular rexus is too large, there may be an increased risk of posterior capsular pacification. If the capsular rexus is too small, there may be an increased risk of capsule contraction syndrome or phimosis. So this is where we started. Um, and the aim of the study was to determine whether pupil size itself actually affected the outcome of our trainee's capsular rexus. Um, first of all, we focused on the closeness of capsular rexus size to a desired diameter of 5 millimetres. This is the aim that we had. Um, we also compared estimated and actual diameters of both pupil and capsular exercises to determine whether the surgeon was actually making the capsular exercise he presumed he was making. First of all, in order to accurately measure pupil and capsular exercise at the actual time of surgery, we actually designed an instrument that can be used directly within the anterior chamber. Um, this is a simple ruler that can pass through small incisions um, and is easy to handle, being based on an iris repositor. Uh, we just adapted an iris repositor with millimeter gradings at, at the tip. And the instrument was man manufactured for us by Altamed Limited, um, and they'll be featuring it in their future catalogues, actually. By taking these direct measurements inside the anterior chamber, we were able to eliminate corneal refractive errors. And so we felt this was a more appropriate way of taking measurements than from outside the eye. Um, so in, in the study, prior to completing each capsular exus, an estimate of the dilated pupil diameter was made. And then the surgeon endeavoured to make a, a capsular excess of diameter 5 millimetres. We chose 5 millimetres as the preferable size to be less than the optic diameters that were being used. Um, following this, the diameter of the completed capsular excess was also estimated. And then, using our instrument, we measured the actual diameters, and this was of the completed capsular excess and of pupil size. 
Um, each estimate and measurement was performed in two meridians which were at 90 degrees to one another. And viscoelastic was used throughout the procedure to maintain pupil size and also to promote safety when using our instrument inside the eye. The cases we had where availability of the instrument allowed, consecutive cases were used. And we had a total of 28 cases which we recorded, each with recordings in two different meridians. So there were 56 estimates and measurements of both pupil and capsular rexus size. 22 of these 28 cases were from three trainee surgeons, and each of these trainees had an experience of less than 150 complete cases. Um, the other six cases were from consultant surgeons. So these are surgeons with an experience of at least 1,000 cataracts and many years of experience. However, it's actually turned out that in all surgeon, group, surgeon groups, um, more than 60% of measured capsular exercises did turn out to be the desired diameter of 5 millimeters, regardless of pupil size. And there didn't appear to be any difference between the different surgeon groups. Um, when we looked at what pupil diameters we had, actual measurements, um, there was a range of fairly even spread of pupil diameter measurements with a range of 6 to 9 millimetres. We looked at trends of capsular excess size with increasing pupil size. Um, we found that with small pupil diameters, and they were the 6 and 6.5 millimetre pupils, as expected, a higher percentage of capsular excess diameters were small compared to capsular excesses with large diameters. And also, as you might expect, with very large pupil sizes, and that was of the 9mm group, a higher percentage of capsular excess had a large diameter than a small diameter. So at these extreme pupil sizes, very small or very large, the pupil did appear to be used like a template, which is what one might expect. However, with the pupil diameters between 7 and 8.5mm, and 65% or more of the capsular exercises actually were the desired aim diameter of 5 millimetres. So excluding the cases where the pupil size was the largest than 9 millimetres, there was this positive trend and an increasing pupil size was associated with a higher percentage of capsular excess achieving the desired diameter of 5 millimetres. We wondered whether our estimations of pupil and capsular excess sizes varied according to the actual pupil diameter. Um, and as one might expect, at small pupil diameters, they're the six and six and a half, and the very large pupil diameters, nine millimeters, there was a higher accuracy in estimating the pupil size than at other pupil sizes um, of seven to eight and a half millimeters. So in other words, it was easy to spot a very small or a very large pupil and more difficult to accurately judge the size of a pupil in the mid-range. However, the opposite was found for capsular excess size estimates. At the same small and large extremes of pupil diameter, there was a lower accuracy in estimates of capsular excess diameter than at the other pupil sizes. And at the largest pupil size of 9mm, there was a consistent underestimation of capsular excess size. And this may explain why larger capsular excess sizes were actually made in, in this group. So, in summary, these results suggest that pupil size does affect the size of the capsular excess performed, even when aiming for a particular capsular excess size. Um, increasing pupil size was associated with a higher accuracy of completing a capsular excess at the intended diameter, which in our group was 5 millimetres. This highlights the importance of both case selection and also adequate preoperative pupil dilatation. 
This study also highlighted that at extremes of pupil size, at the extremes of very large or very small pupils, um, judgment of ac actual capsular exercise may not be accurate. And being a trainee surgeon myself, I found this a useful study um, and now try to make my capsular exercise smaller than I think I should if the pupil is very large and vice versa for very small pupils. The surgeons who were involved in this study um, completed a questionnaire on the usability of the, the instrument that we designed, which was found to be easy to use and it caused no interoperative complications. There may be value, perhaps, in surgical trainees using such an instrument when learning capsular excess techniques. And both our surgical trainees and also the more experienced surgeons found it helpful. Um, we found that it aided our appreciation of the dimensions within the anterior chamber and hence it aided our appreciation of the size of the capsular excess. Kate, was it possible to use the ruler intraoperatively to gauge the size of your capsular excess while you were making it? Well, it, theoretically, yes, it would be possible. It would probably be quite difficult because, um, because it may get in the way of you trying to make your capsular excess, which is where um, Dan Calladine's um, instrument with the actual rexus forceps having gradings comes into its own because there you have um, the ruler in at the time you're making your, your actual capsular excess. So ideally it would be good to have something that does, have an aid that doesn't mean you've got an extra instrument that goes into the eye. Um, so either having a, a sister tome or a rexus forceps that has markings on it and that might help you at the time of the actual rexus. Um, we didn't use this instrument at the time of the capsular rexus because the, for this particular study, the idea was we wanted to see whether we were actually making it and then go in and measure it afterwards and see if we were accurate. But yeah, there's no reason why it shouldn't. It went through small side ports of um, 1.2 millimetres and um, it's, you know, it's not particularly bulky um, and as was felt safe in the eye. So I, would, um, I, I would see no reason why it couldn't be used. But it... it, it Certainly as a trainee, I think I'd find it difficult to have an extra instrument in the eye while I was trying to do my capsular access. Kate, since our control of the pupil size is to some extent limited, uh, what do you recommend for practicing cataract surgeons or, for that matter, for residents uh, learning to do cataract surgery vis-a-vis -vis the pupil size? Well, I think this study, we only had 28 um, uh, cases and clearly we need to have a lot more to really know whether these trends are widespread and with a, a, a wider range of surgeons as well, because it, in a way it's quite a subjective study. Um, but if we are looking at the actual results that we found, um, it would suggest that as a trainee, it's um, best to try and pick cases that do have, <laughs> it's obvious really, to try that things may be easier with larger pupils. And that it, seemed, it did seem that the larger the pupil the more accurate the, the rexus estimation was and the actual rexus being formed, the more accurate the size was. And this was excluding the cases of 9 millimeters. Um, so for me, I found that if I have a very large pupil, I'm aware that my judgment may not be all that accurate, but other than a huge pupil, most well-dilated pupils um, would be suitable cases for a trainee. I think small pupils are obviously very difficult anyway for other reasons. It's, difficult to learn on, on patients with small pupils anyway because you don't have a great view and, and certainly the FACO um, things can get more tricky. So I think this, this study just confirmed that it's not only that 
you have a better view of the the capsule with the larger people, but your judgment may be better and your size may be more accurate. Kate, from my own position as someone who teaches residents how to do cataract surgery, uh, do you have any recommendations for, for me in terms of making my residents' lives easier? Being aware that it's not that the rex, not just having an I- ideal position and shape of the rectus, but thinking about the size you're making has been quite helpful as a trainee. Um, and perhaps showing your trainees the different tools that are available to help appreciate this uh, may, may be helpful. We found that helpful. Kate Barnes, thank you very much. No, well, thank you very much. It, it's, it's, it's an honour. Kate Barnes is Senior House Officer at the Oxford Eye Hospital in Oxford, England. Ask questions of Dr. Salmon, Dr. Barnes, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States style area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.